Well, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, a message I'm calling the ministry of marriage. And so we'll talk a good bit about family today. Well, in the Booth household, a lot has been happening lately, almost simultaneously. Well, last week, Joy and I celebrated together 36 years of marriage. About a month ago, well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Uh, then uh, about a month ago, our newest grandson was born. Lauren, our youngest, we just dropped off at college on Friday. And yes, there were tears. And no, they weren't just Joy's tears. Uh, she got it started. But once she started, I, my eyes were leaking. I'll say that. They were leaking. And so we're adjusting to that. Uh, but we're happy for her. Our middle daughter, you might recall, was married back in December, <clears throat> doing well with her husband, and we're grateful they'll be moving back here to, to Richmond in uh, October, so we're grateful for that. And so a lot of good things happening, a lot of things happening, but lest it sound real idyllic, there have been health issues going along at the same time that we've been working through. But here's what my point is, that family life is a big part of life, and family life is very spiritual. And family life requires much grace. And thankfully, God has given us wisdom, the wisdom that we need to navigate the complexities, even the messiness of life, even family life. And so Paul here continues in chapter 7, giving us practical words for first the believers in Corinth in the first century Roman Empire, but oh, a lot of application for us here in our day. Now, we've just seen in the early part of this chapter last time that Paul wrote about the value of singleness. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online, watch that message, because a very, I think, important word for our singles of the value of singleness. But also last time we saw, correspondingly, the value of marriage. Today, Paul's going to continue this teaching on marriage and talk about the permanence of marriage and also what I'm calling the ministry of marriage. Now, remember, Paul already told us his preference. He let us know that as a single man, he preferred that, that status for himself, a single man following Jesus. He called that a gift. Do you remember? So yes, he regarded marriage as a gift. Some people have this gift and some have another. He saw his singleness as a gift. In fact, he told us in verse 35 that he saw this as an opportunity for a more undivided, a more singular devotion to Christ. But we're going to see here, he's going to encourage these Corinthians, but don't seek divorce if you're married to become single like him. Sounds like a strange thing to have to teach, but we'll talk about the context in Corinth, why he felt the need to write this and as the Holy Spirit guided him. So 1 Corinthians 7, our text today is verses 10 through 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
So notice with me first here, marriage is to be permanent. Marriage is to be permanent. Paul brings up divorce here with the command, don't divorce. Now we think, why is he bringing this up? Remember the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, really Paul's responding to a report from Chloe's people about these Corinthians and all their division and the, the, the immorality going on among members of the church and all that. So he's addressed all that. Remember in chapter seven, he now pivots and says, now concerning things about which you wrote. And so he's addressing their questions here. So talks about singleness. They've got questions about singleness. They have questions about marriage, about desire, about temptation. So that's why he's being so pointed here and giving such good application here. So Paul mentions here though, in response to their questions, that marriage is to be permanent. And the first thing he does here in verse 10, he references the teachings of Jesus on this topic. So Paul really is thinking to what we call Matthew 19, three through nine, which says this, and Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Paul here quotes the teaching of Jesus. He references the teaching of Jesus just to say that marriage is to be permanent. Now, here's why this comes up. Apparently, the Christian wives in the church in Corinth, some of them at least were under the impression that they would be holier and more pleasing to God if they acted like they were single in their marriages. That if they would be celibate, if they, celibate, if they would not interact physically with their husband, somehow that would be holier. They had an erroneous idea that the body's bad and these desires are bad, even in marriage. And so they were wanting to keep themselves separate from their husbands, hence the teachings we got last time in the early part of chapter seven. But apparently they also had the idea, well, not only would it be advantageous spiritually to abstain from intimacy with my husband in marriage, but, it, but you know, I'm willing to divorce him if need be in order to be holy. I, I, granted, it's bizarre that they would ever think that, but that's what Paul's having to write into. Again, verses one through nine, addressing the error of not being intimate with your spouse. He calls that uh, bad thinking. We talked about that last time with this, this unilateral celibacy would be to sin against your spouse, to be to defraud your spouse. But now he takes on this erroneous idea of divorcing your spouse in order to be more holy, more pleasing to God. Again, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Notice the phrase here, not I, but the Lord. It's important to single that out. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that Jesus spoke to this. We know what Jesus said on this. And so he's just letting you know the source of this is coming from Jesus. I mentioned that because in verse 12, he's going to say some things. He's going to say, I, not the Lord. Now, does that mean there Paul saying, listen, this is just my opinion. You can take it or leave it. I'm just giving you my thoughts here. 
No, he's just letting you know the origin of this teaching. He also, full of the Holy Spirit, he is an apostle of the Lord. He's given authoritative teaching. He's just letting you know, I'm, I'm telling you now that this is coming from me, but, but it's no less authoritative. Just letting you know the source of the information. But this is also interesting. Paul directs this teaching of not divorcing to the wives first, more pointedly to them. Therefore, it appears that this error of thinking that divorcing and, and getting single again for spiritual reasons was something in the Corinthian women. So he's having to address them. Also tells the husbands, now you don't divorce them either, but the wives are having the problem with that there in Corinth. Just bad theology, bad doctrine somehow in their minds. By the way, this was interesting. When I was doing research for this sermon, I, I learned this, that in our culture, in America, that of all the divorces that happen, 70% of the divorces are initiated by the women. Isn't it interesting? I, I did not know that. I would not have guessed that. And it comes from a credible source that, that overwhelmingly, when divorce happens in America, 70% of the time, it's the wife who's initiating it. And this, this report I was reading really referenced that it wasn't that these wives most of the time have a problem with their particular husband. That, that happens too. We're going to talk about biblical grounds for divorce in just a moment. And so there are lousy husbands and we understand some of that. Well, again, we'll talk about it. But, but it's generally what these, what these writers were saying was that the women are just generally dissatisfied with, with marriage itself. You know, this is not really what I thought it was going to be. Therefore, I'm getting out. Not a great reason to be leaving marriages. So, so we, we understand this. Paul, we come back to our text. Paul's exhorting those married to stay married and to love each other in the marriage. Take all of 1 Corinthians 7 in context. Stay married and love each other well in the marriage. So understand this, the Bible does not present a picture of marriage as merely just, it's just permanent. You're going to be miserable, just hanging there till the end. That's not the ideal. Some people feel that way. You, you could go through a really rough patch that I'm just going to hang in here. I'm getting nothing from this, but I'm just being faithful. That, that's honorable, but that's not the ideal. That's not what God's calling for. We're just going to be long-term roommates. This is all that's going to be. By the way, I wouldn't want Joy to stay in our marriage just because she has to. I mean, I'm grateful that's a backstop. But I'm glad it's not like, you know, the only reason she's sticking around is because Jesus has her penned in with the scripture. I'd rather her also want to stay married, right? So think about what's a successful marriage. What is a successful marriage? Well, first of all, that the Jesus is pleased, as we're going to see in a moment. This is his institution. This is his idea. And so, Lord, are you pleased with how we're carrying out our roles in the marriage? That, that's the number one measure of success. And, and God gets to decide, uh, are, you, are you being faithful there or not? But I think the second way that you would judge, judge the success of your marriage is, is my spouse happy? Is, does my spouse want to be in this? Not just because she has to, but that she's fulfilled. And then third would be, and then am I happy with it? That'd be how we would estimate success here. So listen, in a Christian home, the way God's designed it, we're taking all of the scripture together. We're to love each other in this marriage and honor each other. We're to respect each other. We're to serve and care for each other. We're in a partnership together in life and in ministry. We're going to have fun and enjoy each other. But have you found this to be true? In life, there are also lots of problems. I mean, you start thinking about it. The longer I'm down this track of life, I start thinking life is just a series of problems. And the beauty of Christian marriage is I have this wonderful, wise, godly partner that we can face every problem with. But there are tons of problems. I'm glad when we got married at 20 that uh, I didn't know all the problems that were coming. You know, there's health problems and financial strain and all kinds of stuff going on. And, and I'm glad he didn't tell me up front, look, there are going to be like 40 million struggles ahead. 
But, but what I do know is just walking with your wife and in the grace of God, here comes another problem. And we're going to have to navigate this one together. Oh man, here's four more problems. And here are 18 more. So I don't even want to know about this afternoon's problems that could be, that we could have to face together in just life, whatever crazy thing could happen. I don't want to know that. I just want to trust in Jesus here. So Christian marriage, we're to walk through this together. So here's application for us. Listen, remain in your marriage, except for the more extreme situations. So I want to mention these extreme situations where, where God acknowledges, listen, there is, there is an out here in extreme situations. First of all, adultery. And that's what Jesus referenced when we, when we read his text from, from Matthew 19 just a moment ago. Jesus references that if your spouse is sexually unfaithful to you, that you, they've already broken the covenant, then you could be free from that. It's not your fault that they did that. Now, you don't have to leave the marriage. If you found that your spouse were just utterly contrite and broken and ashamed and repentant, you could reconcile with them. You're going to have to forgive them either way. You might forgive them and let them go or forgive them and reconcile, but um, you could keep them. And there were some wonderful stories of redemption through things even like that. But adultery would give a person, you're not sinning if you leave a partner who has cheated on you with somebody else sexually. Then the other extreme situation that's mentioned in scripture is right here in our text in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. We, we typically call this abandonment. If the other person in the context here, if an unbeliever leaves you, he says, you're not enslaved. In other words, you're not bound. You didn't cause that. You are free. And so, but we do know that just thinking about our culture where we live, you can't stop somebody from divorcing you if they want to, right? So you, you could do your best. You could work hard to try to improve the marriage, but if the other person wants to go, you can't stop them. You might slow it down with some legal maneuvering, but they can go. And again, they've abandoned you and therefore you're not at fault there. And by the way, sometimes people ask about what about abuse? And many of us understand that abuse is really a type of abandonment. So somebody's abusing their spouse, you are breaking your covenant with them. That's not what you were to do. And, and really, in a way, it's like the worst type of abandonment. You're still there inflicting harm on them. Uh, then that would be a type of abandonment to, to many of us as we consider that. But back to our situation. Well, let, let me pause here. Um, if you're going through abuse like that, let me just speak to you pastorally. Uh, you need to get, get away from that person. You, you call 911 if you're being abused, get help. We as a church will come alongside you to help you there. If you feel like, I'm, I don't know who I can trust to tell this because I'm scared it's going to get worse. We'll try to help you navigate that. So please don't suffer alone if you're in an abusive situation. Now back to Corinth. Again, they weren't divorcing in Corinth for these extreme reasons. These are largely women, probably some men to, perhaps too, with this bad thinking, marriage isn't as spiritual as single, we're going to go be single. After all, Paul is single and he says it's a gift, let's go over here and try to live that life. Paul soundly rejects that thinking and he quotes Jesus here, don't break your covenant in this type of case. But in the extreme cases, aside from the extreme cases, you remain in your marriage. But we know this, we know that marriage can be messy. We know that marriage can be painful. And it wasn't long ago I quoted my seminary professor, and I want to do it again. So this was a church planting class. I still remember this professor. Before he started lecturing on church planting, he, we have a time of prayer before class. And he said this, men, there's no pain like marriage pain. Again, I shared that with you recently. But, but it's one of the two things I remember him saying 
all semester, all these years later. I remember he said one thing about church planning I still remember all these years later. But I remember that. And it was so impactful to me, not that Joy and I were having trouble, just like, wow, he was so humble to tell a group of us younger men that he was having some struggles at home. And I've carried that with me just with compassion toward couples that are going through difficulty. You might be struggling here this morning. Likelihood is a number of you are struggling in your marriage. And so as believers, let me just encourage you in some ways. If you're in a tough marriage, let me encourage you in several ways. First of all, would you reach out for help? You have a team of five pastors here who love you, who would be happy to try to arrange a time to meet with you, to, to hear what's going on, to offer some help in a difficult marriage. Also, we do have a counseling ministry. They stay pretty full, but if, if you also, you could reach out and say, I want to meet with somebody there, and hopefully they could make a time to consult with you or at least refer you. But again, you got five pastors. You have, we have our counseling ministry. Another thing I would commend to you, you think, I, I don't want to wait on that. Uh, even this afternoon, when you get home, you could go to the Focus on the Family website. And I've spent a lot of time there lately over these last two weeks as we talked about family life, just re-familiarizing re myself with what's on Focus on the Family's website. It is rich with information, information that I trust. And you could go there and just read about marriage troubles and, and all types of marriage troubles. What, what you're facing, likely they're covering in one of their many, many articles there. And singleness as well, as we've talked about, lots of resources there. Another place you could go is familylife.com. And that's a ministry of Campus Crusade. They do a lot with marriage as well. Familylife.com or family.org or focusonthefamily.com. You go to those three places. Again, if you need those, text me or email me. I'll send you those where you can go for help. But the point is, reach out for help. God can give you resources where you, you can take a, a marriage that's flat and it could grow to fulfilling. But somebody here might say, but no, ours is beyond just flat. It is in total disarray. And there's really, I think, no hope for it. And again, some of these extreme cases, I would understand that. But let me mention one other thing from Focus on the Family. Sounds like I'm advertising for them. I suppose I am, but I get no compensation for it. I just found these things helpful. So Focus on the Family has a ministry called Hope Restored Intensives. And this is for those marriages where the husband and wife think, I don't think there's any hope. But let's just make one last ditch attempt. Heart's not even in it. Maybe something can happen here. So for marriages in that state, they, they say that there's a 99% satisfaction rate for those who go through their hope restored intensive. Here's what they say on their website. We've helped over 11,000 couples in crisis since 2003. And 99% of those who, who surveyed afterwards uh, said that they would recommend it. They say this, eight in 10 avoided divorce. That's remarkable. So they also have some testimonials on there. Let me just read you one by a man named Scott. He said, I came here feeling hopeless, brokenhearted, with no emotion. I felt like this was our last chance to heal our marriage. The presence of God in the room was truly felt. It was amazing to feel the love of God come back into our lives and those around us. I'm looking forward to returning home a changed man, loving and caring for myself and my wife. I'm departing with my most heartfelt emotion. I love my wife. So hope, no matter how strained, how difficult, we can, again, I can remind you of these resources, help you walk through stuff like that. But this is, again, a painful topic, but there can be hope. But back to our text here, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has been teaching, listen, marriage is good. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. And marriage can be useful to God. In fact, here's our next point. Marriage is ministry. So marriage is to be permanent. Second point, marriage is ministry. Let's reread these verses now, verses 12 and following. I want you to hear that. 
how marriage can be ministry. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we had a hard time understanding the confusion in Corinth related. I think I need a divorce to be single, to be more holy. We think, who thinks that way? Well, they had that problem there. But so we have a hard time sympathizing with their confusion there. But still good teaching for us. But now we say, but I do understand this one. When the question would come to Paul like this, well, listen, I'm now married to an unbeliever. Shouldn't I leave the unbeliever so that I can be holy? Shouldn't I leave an unbelieving spouse so I can serve Jesus better? Singles can have undivided devotion to Jesus. I'm here now linked to an unbeliever. Shouldn't I leave them? How am I supposed to follow God when I have an unbelieving spouse? They would ask something like this. How can I please God with a spouse who still worships idols, who's dishonest, who uses profanity all the time, who, who really lives a pagan life. How can I do this? Now understand this, the situation in Corinth was not that the Christians were out dating unbelievers and marrying unbelievers. So here's the situation in Corinth. Remember, Paul wrote this about four or five years after he established the church. Christianity really wasn't there until Paul came preaching the gospel. So everybody was pagan or they were Jewish. And so in that city, Paul would come in preaching and you'd have two pagans hearing the gospel. And one of the pagans would believe in Jesus and the other did not. Now they're spiritually mismatched. And likewise in the Jewish households, the gospel came to the Jewish people in Corinth as well. And some of them believe. So you'd have one spouse, a Jewish spouse, see that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm trusting in him as my savior, but the other spouse did not. So now they're thinking, well, what do we do? What do we do? He says, oh, you, you remain in your marriage. Believer, don't leave. Don't initiate a divorce. You must stay in the marriage. Now imagine the harm if the teaching were opposite of that. That wherever the gospel went, the Christians were instructed, now divorce your pagan spouse. Then Christianity would be like, that's a, that's a horrible faith coming in here and just tearing apart family after family. The Christians are instructed to abandon their spouses and their families. No, he says, you stay there. Honor your commitment. Love your spouse better than you ever have before. Oh, but we can sympathize with the challenge. To be married to somebody who has your old goals, your old values, your old way of life. You're trying to leave your past and this person is living the same way that you used to. What a problem. By the way, this is why you as a believer should not seek to go out and marry an unbeliever. Here we're talking to people who already had. One of them became a Christian. One remained as they both were. But let's just be reminded as a Christian, if you're thinking about marriage, then you don't intentionally go out and marry an unbeliever. We know that because of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So the word of God says, do not yoke yourself with an unbeliever. But if you've already yoked yourself to an unbeliever in marriage, don't break that yoke. Don't separate yourself from them. So however, Paul says, now, even though you're, you have the intention of staying, your unbelieving spouse might just choose to leave you. 
Verse 15 again. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here we're talking about marriage. And marriage is a ministry in a, in a Christian home, but also even among unbelievers. Let's just talk about that for a little bit. What is the biblical ideal for marriage? What is it that we're to be aspiring to with tremendous help from God? Well, we have great help for us in the scripture that marriage is a ministry. In fact, marriage is to have a message, the gospel message. And that's what Paul gets out in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. I want you to hear these words and, and you see what we're to pattern our marriages after here. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 is wonderful. All kinds of practical words there for husbands and wives. But Paul says, what I'm really getting at here is this marriage has a message. This marriage is to point to the love of Jesus for his church. That's the message our Christian homes should be proclaiming to the world. Now, we know this, that somebody watching our marriages, just watching, they're not going to get enough information to be born again. We have to proclaim the gospel with our words, calling them to repent and believe in Jesus, the one who died and was raised for them. We must communicate that. But our marriages should adorn that message. Our marriages should be in harmony with that message. So we say, well, who's watching my marriage? Well, if you have children, your children are watching your marriage. They have a front row seat to a gospel message as you follow Christ together as a couple. It's going to be messy. It's going to be imperfect. You won't pull it off perfectly. You've got two, two sinners in a household who've been redeemed, if you're both believers. But your children are going to get to see, well, this is real. And I see the role dad's playing, loving mom like Christ loved the church. That's, I mean, the primary role is on the guy. And what a beautiful testimony that you get to have for your children. They get to see really not only your teaching, but your example model, the gospel modeled at home. That's what we're shooting for imperfectly. But other people are watching you even in the church. You get to edify and inspire other people as you imperfectly follow this pattern of Ephesians 5 through the power of the Holy Spirit, then others are encouraged as they see the gospel lived out in your marriage and others in the community as well. Again, they're going to need you to verbally talk about Jesus. They're not going to be saved watching you. But hopefully when they see you in your marriage, you've been talking to them about hope and peace and forgiveness and then they can see whatever they can see of your marriage. Like, well, I, I see in that marriage, as imperfect as these two people are, I see hope, I see peace, I see forgiveness, I see what that looks like. Your marriage is a ministry. But somebody said, well, no, but, but I'm married to an unbeliever. Well, your marriage also is a ministry. 
a ministry to this unbelieving spouse. And so understand, it is difficult that you have, you have new priorities. So really, we have to have patience with the unbeliever. You're the one who changed. You were both unbelievers when you married, presumably, if it's like the First Corinthians context. And we have here a person who now has changed. New priorities. You have new loyalties, new values and morals. You have a new purpose in life. And they think, what happened? I read about a guy in South Africa who years ago, he talked about when his wife became a Christian, he said, I felt like she had a new man in her life. She's now consulting somebody else with all the big decisions of life rather than consulting me like she used to. So we're talking about got to be patient with that unbelieving spouse if you've had this wonderful experience of coming to Christ. But your goal as a spouse of an unbeliever is to love your spouse, to point them to Christ. And if you have children, to point your children to Christ. You want to live an attractive Christian life before your unbelieving spouse. In fact, your, your unbelieving spouse should be thinking, I just got an upgrade. Yeah, she's different, or yeah, he's different, but now that Jesus has come into their lives, I've got a new and improved spouse. Imagine that. So if you're now walking with the Lord imperfectly, but the Holy Spirit's in you, and you're attempting to yield to him daily, he's producing his fruit in you, your spouse will be the first to benefit from that. I've never experienced this in marriage. Joy's been a Christian longer than I've been one. So we met and dated as Christians and got married. And so never had this experience like this. But I do know what it's like when somebody comes into the home as a Christian. You've heard my testimony. Growing up, we were a nominal Christian family. Kind of every Sunday, we'd be in church. More Sundays than not, we were there. But we really didn't talk about Jesus between Sundays. That was something we did on Sunday. Occasionally, we'd ask for a blessing. But, um, but no, no real love for Jesus until my brother came home. Six years older than me, he comes in the home and he's just in love with Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. And it was odd at first, as you've heard me tell many times before. It was odd at first, but I couldn't deny there's something better in him now. This is very attractive. Started listening to his Christian music, started reading the Bible like he was doing. And my life has never been the same because a Christian came home into my family. I know it's trickier in a marriage. I know it's harder in a marriage, but you could have that role in your family as you live for Christ in your family. We're just talking about marriage can be a ministry. So Paul tells these Corinthians, don't divorce them. And they think, well, I could serve better if I weren't with them. He would remind you, you are serving him by honoring your marriage and your spouse. You are serving Christ by your testimony in your home. You are serving Christ by modeling commitment and godliness to your own children. And he says, you could have a spiritual benefit on your spouse and children. That's verse 14 again. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. That's interesting. So what does that mean? Does that mean that your unsaved spouse is saved because you're in the home? No, it certainly can't mean that. They have to make their own decision for Christ. They have to repent of their sins and put their full faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. That's how they're going to be reconciled to God. But there is spiritual benefit to your spouse and children if you are the believer in the house. Here's how one, one scholar described this. He says divorce was to be avoided because the Christian spouse was a channel of God's grace in the marriage. Within the one flesh relationship, the blessing of God, which came to the Christian affected the family as a whole. It is in this sense that the unbelieving spouse was sanctified and the children were holy. And there's some biblical examples of where God blesses a household because of the one believer, like Joseph in Potiphar's house in the Old Testament, or Jacob in Laban's house. God can bless in some way. 
But again, not a guarantee that your spouse will be saved if you hang in there, like the scripture says, and you love them well. But that is the ultimate hope, isn't it? 1 Peter 3, 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So Christian, love your unbelieving spouse. Show them the difference that Jesus makes in a life. With God's help, live out the Sermon on the Mount in your very home. Fulfill all of your marital responsibilities. Live evangelistically before your unbelieving spouse and children. If you're a husband, you are a spiritual leader. They may not want that leadership, so be super gentle. Don't be belligerent, but you want to seek as you can to influence your family for Christ. And if you're a believing wife with an unbelieving husband, you want to demonstrate your honor and your respect for your husband as unto Christ in order to lead them to Christ. I would say this way, they shouldn't get a boring version of you now that you're a Christian. They shouldn't get an angry version of you now that you're a Christian. Listen, be fun. Don't become sour and prudish. Be holy and pure, but also be loving and energetic and sweet and helpful and gracious and willing and peaceful and positive. You want to win your spouse to Christ if possible. Famous author and apologist Lee Strobel, he speaks to this because he and his wife were unbelievers when they married. He was a proud atheist, if you perhaps know his testimony, a proud atheist until his wife becomes a Christian. And he did not like it at all at first. And he, he speaks bluntly about that. In fact, here's what, here's what his initial response to his wife becoming a Christian while he was still an atheist. He said, one reason for my angry outbursts during our mismatch time was the feeling that I was losing the woman I loved. To put it bluntly, I was jealous of Jesus. For the first time in our marriage, Leslie's emotional needs were being met by someone other than me. It felt like Leslie had broken our marriage agreement by seeking comfort and encouragement from someone else. Over time, I saw that Leslie's devotion to Christ actually reinforced her love for me and made her want to strengthen our bond. Instead of ignoring me in favor of Christ, church, and her Christian friends, Leslie redoubled her efforts to be a caring, thoughtful spouse. I could see that I was still the most important person in her life, just as she was in mine. Of course, Lee Strobel did eventually become a believer himself. And, and uh, he goes on to give this advice to people in a marriage like he had when they were mismatched like that. He said, the Christian principles that you bring to your marriage will change the flavor of your relationship. Be a truth teller a servant, a forgiver, a person of humility, integrity, and kindness. The extent to which your relationship will be, quote, Christian is the extent to which you commit yourself to following Jesus and letting his influence permeate your life. So this is the goal. We want to point our spouses to Christ. But again, Paul says, but no guarantee. You're being faithful. They may choose to leave you. This change might be just too much for them, and they may leave you. You are not bound by that. You are not guilty for that. God's called you to peace. Well, we began this service singing amazing songs about the grace of the Lord and forgiveness. And, and I want us to come back to that theme as we close. You've been hearing me talk about people going from unbeliever to believer, that that's the great hope in a marriage where you have a believer and unbeliever. Oh, we pray that that unbeliever will become a believer. Do you know God can do that for you today? That he can take you from being an unbeliever and you can make that shift to believer. And you think, can that happen? Oh, it happens. Do you know where God gets believers? Always he gets them from unbelievers, right? That's where believers come from, always. So everybody that's currently a believer was once an unbeliever. That's what happened. So don't feel like, well, I'm too far from the gospel because I haven't believed. We all were like that. 
to varying degrees. It looked differently in all of our circumstances. So listen, you might have come in here today not trusting Jesus, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your religion, trusting in your family. I don't know. But today you've heard the good news. You've heard us sing about Jesus and the freedom you can have and, and the life you can have in Jesus. And so today, would you put your faith in Jesus? You might ask the question as an unbeliever, why do I need Jesus? My life's pretty good like it is. Can I tell you why you need Jesus? You desperately need him because a good God made you. And that good God made you with a purpose. And up to this point, you have not been following his purpose. You've lived your own life. You've tried to, to even say that he doesn't exist or he doesn't matter to you. You got it on your own. That, the Bible calls that sin. And you're not okay in your sin. You're not okay now. You're estranged from God. But listen, it gets more serious. There is coming a day when you'll give an account of your life to the Lord. You do that. The Bible says it's appointed the man to, to live once, to die once, and then to face judgment. And so there's a day you'll stand before God. You'll give an account for your life. And you don't want to stand in his presence for judgment covered in your sins. Still estranged from God. And that's why Jesus came. That's why we use the word saved. That's why the Bible tells us he, he calls it saving you. Jesus came to rescue. How can he do it? Well, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. Loved perfectly. Taught perfectly. Healed people. But the mission was to go to the cross. Jesus, the perfect one, went to a cross where he gave himself for you as a sacrifice for you because of your many sins. Jesus poured out all his blood on a cross. He allowed himself to be killed for you. And that blood atones for, covers all of your sins. He was raised on the third day and Jesus made this promise. If you will believe in him, you won't perish in that judgment that's to come. But instead, you'll have everlasting life. You'll get to be with him forever in heaven. And so today, would you go from unbeliever to believer? Would you trust only in Jesus Christ, what he did for you on the cross and in his resurrection? Would you ask Jesus to be your savior? That's how you share your trust. Jesus, would you forgive me for all of my sin? Whether sins in my family life or sins as a single Whatever your sins, would you come to him humbly? Jesus, would you forgive me? I know you say you will because you died for me. You're raised from the dead. I trust in you now. That's how you express that. And you can be what we say, saved. You know Jesus. I hope you'll do that. Here's another thing he's going to do. He not only will save you, but he'll give you a new purpose for your life. A new reason to live. Your life, your life will have a ministry. And so would you trust in Jesus today? Let's pray. God, over and over again, we're just amazed at your kindness that you would have a plan to rescue us from all of our guilt and sin. As we sang earlier, how you had a plan through your son, Jesus on a cross to take away all of our shame. And we have a lot of shame, a lot of regrets in our past. You had a plan to remedy that through your son, Jesus. And so Lord, we celebrate you just as we did at the beginning. Then Lord, we, we thank you that you have given us your word to guide us through all the messiness of life, even family life. So thank you for this truth. Now, Lord, as we prayed at the beginning, would you help your people to apply these truths in their homes? Lord, in their hearts, would you accomplish your work as only you can? Lord, I pray for men and women to today move from unbelief to belief, to trust you alone as Savior and Lord. God, we look forward to watching you do that miraculous work of saving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.